0: You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 62. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there is no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment free within the context of evidence based research. Dr. Amber, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to the show. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation because I am very interested in this topic, developmental psychology for children. So before we dive into our topic today, could you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background, education, and your where you are as a mom?
1: Yes, I'd love to. So I'm Dr. Amber Morabito. I am a developmental psychologist, and I'm an educational consultant as well. I also teach at the college level in psychology at um, Santa Rosa Junior College. So I do a little bit of a lot of things. Um, and on top of that, my most important job is being a mom. And not only is it a job, it's a gift um, and a pleasure. I have two children, uh, 15 Now, trying to keep up with him, you know, when they're that half age, they like to throw that in. So 15 and a half year old and a 12 year old, she just turned 12. So I am fully immersed in the adolescence and the preteen stage.
0: What made you get interested in developmental psychology? That's a
1: great question, Emily. I have always loved children, anything to have to do with children and people in general. And so when I had to pick my specialization, I thought, hmm, how do I combine my love for children and my love for people in general? And that led me to developmental psychology because essentially a developmental psychologist studies the continuum of people, the study of people from birth till death. And so I just, I'm fascinated by all of it, fascinated by conception all the way through the cycles of um, death and dying. And our culture doesn't talk a lot about those things, but there's so many parallels between the, be- the beauty of beginning of lives and the-, the, beauty of the end
0: of life. Mm, I like that. That's the perfect transition to the next question that I wanted to ask you what, which is what is developmental psychology and also how can it help parents and children?
1: Mm, that's a really good question also, because developmental psychology is really understanding where a person is in their development. So the answer is kind of in the name there. So really looking at the developmental milestones and what we know for a child specifically, if we're talking about mothers and children, what we know about children at that age. And what's so important about it is because if we know or have a general understanding of what we can expect for children at a certain age, we then can adjust our expectations for the way that we interact for them, with them and just what we expect for them overall. So it, it's really been eye-opening and exciting to learn so much in my journey in education and to partner with families in helping them understand the needs of their children.
0: Hmm. I like that a lot. And as you were saying that, what came to mind is the fact that we as adults and I myself constantly have to check myself for falling into this trap. I feel like a lot of us as parents expect adult behaviors Mm -hmm. out of our children many times, which I'm sure you have many examples and, and can relate to that. Uh, I guess, uh, is there a certain way that you break up different ages, age ranges to, to try to analyze how we can approach, um, you know, the, the different developmental stages in children? I really appreciate how you just started this
1: question off when you said how sometimes we expect them to be adult or have adult behaviors. And So much of understanding where children are is really grounding ourselves in where they are developmentally. And so the way that I like to uh, understand and talk about and teach development uh, to my students and families is around, if you think about that, first of all, conception, that's a huge period that sometimes we just look over. So there's so much that we know about prenatal care that's super important, the the infant developing in the womb, it's so important, all of that. You can do all these things even before your baby's born and taking care of yourself, um, your environment, mom thinking about her stress levels, all of that, talking to the baby, etc. And then you have the infancy period. So that's around zero. What's really unique about the infancy period is you think about from like zero to three months, that itty bitty baby. A lot of what you see is a lot of instinctual behaviors in those children. Essentially, they're doing things to let their people know, their adults, that, hey, keep me alive. That's why they're so cute. That's why that crying is like ear piercing. You can't ignore them. It's take care of me. Okay. And then after about three months till about 18 months, we start to see so much happen with that young baby. But that's still considered the infancy period. And then at about 18 months to 36 months, that's when we see that toddler. By 18 months, most uh, toddlers have started walking. But what you really see at that 18 months to 36 months is this real um, innate need to explore and this emerging independence. And then from about 36 months up to, uh, I would say, kinder, about age five, that's that preschool period. And they're in preschool, they're doing all the things there, um, continuing with their emerging independence. And then school age is from about kindergarten up through fifth grade. Um, So much is happening there. It's amazing. Um, I'm having a little pause because my daughter asked me this week, she turned 12, Mama, what's your favorite age range of kids with me and her brother? And it was such a good question. We were driving and I love being in the car with them because they're just trapped, right? It's you and them. and So many great conversations and it was so hard to, so many, and it was hard to pick (laughs) because (laughs) all of it really is full of so much. And it's all about preference. Um, So I gave her a non-answer, which is I've loved it all. Um, Every age brings its own challenges and joy. So from kindergarten to fifth, uh, till about age 10, they're in uh, fifth grade. And then you have the middle school years. So from about 10 till about 13, that's that preteen period, um, where we see lots going on with hormonal changes and a uh, lot again around identity. I write a blog and I recently wrote one about comparing toddlers and teenagers. There's so many parallels there. And um, And then they go into high school and they're still teenagers up until they're about 18. But the challenges are some are the same, some change. Um, And then they're moving into that emerging adulthood um, at around age 18 till about, it depends on who you ask, 23, (laughs) 25. Brain research tells us it's 25 until the brain is fully integrated. Interesting. That's how I would think break things up
0: it's so interesting that you mentioned your blog post on the comparisons between toddlers and teenagers because i recently had that revelation um you, you know just as what i was reading up on how toddlers is just a de- developmental stage that they're going through they're just trying to inter- uh assert their in- independence those sorts of things and it just sounded a lot to me like teenagers, you know. And so I'm hoping that when my kids get to the, mm-hmm. the teenage stage, that if I can maintain that mindset—I mean, this is obviously very idealistic—that I'm hoping that that'll make it a little bit easier. Even though I still know it'll be really hard, but it's interesting that that you made that connection.
1: Yeah, I'm hopeful for you, Emily, because if you're already thinking about it, that's half the battle. Because I tell you, us moms need whatever we can get to help kind of bolster us up because it it is so challenging. And, you know, the other thing about the comparison between toddler and teenager, sometimes they get a bad rap. You know, I'm often reframing Mm -hmm. for folks around the terrible twos, you know, and I I say, well, it can be and it can be terrific. They can be the terrific twos. And um, I feel that teenagers Mm -hmm. sometimes also get a bad rap. And understanding what their innate need is at each developmental stage helps us have more compassion, Mm -hmm. maybe patience and understanding.
0: I like that a lot. And I guess one thing that's helped me too is just to realize in adults that we have different things that we go through. One example that I can think of is, you know, when I'm pregnant and postpartum, I know I'm not the easiest person to to be around in every single stage of pregnancy and postpartum. And then I was just thinking that, well, I mean, if you know, if I'm having a hard time with all these hormones and postpartum period, and all this stuff, like I can't even imagine what a toddler must be going through with, you know, rapid physical growth, mental mm-hmm. growth, uh, emotional growth, those sorts of things. And then I, I, I guess I just thought that it's a lot to expect from a little child that has only been on this earth two to three years. <laughs> to expect them to behave better than than I do when I'm at my lowest points, postpartum and pregnancy. Uh, I really like how you've uh, talked about reframing uh, the terrible twos. I know that most of our listeners have at least one toddler. Uh, So I would like to talk talk a little bit more about this specific area. How can we reframe our mindset? Mm -hmm. Do you have any practical tools for how we can reframe not only our mindset, but also our actions when, when we're interacting with, with our toddlers so that we can, uh, it can be a little bit more enjoyable and we can make them terrific.
1: Yes. Oh, I, I like that. Yes, I can share. Definitely. It starts with us, right? So the first step I would say is really just educating ourselves as much as we can, you know, moms, we're busy. We have a lot going on. I'm not suggesting people go back to school, but educate ourselves around what is the developmental need? What is this child trying to tell me? And mm-hmm. we, we know that behavior, we know in the field, the research tells us that behavior, all behavior is communication. So in that moment, if we can start to, to look mm-hmm. at what's going on with them as, okay, my child's trying to communicate with me. That's one step. Um, and then depending on how old the child is. So if the child doesn't have language, we might see things like more aggression, more biting, or things like that, where they're really trying to get their message across. So we can say to ourselves, mm-hmm. they're really trying to communicate something to me. They have very strong feelings. How can I figure this out? And so approaching our interactions with our children as an investigator, mm-hmm. um, Really trying to decode what's being said is another way. And keeping in mind that the job of a toddler, their innate needs, so that means what their their bodies are wired to do, they're hardwired to do a couple of things. One is be in deep relationship with people. So the, the people that are going to get these challenging behaviors mm. the most are the, their primary caregivers, which tends to be Mom and or anyone else that's caring for the child more, ex- most exclusively, right? So they're saving it for us. So yay, us! We're doing a good job. They, but security. we're doing a great one. Yes. So that's their job. They're they're need to be in deep relationships with us. Next, they are asserting their independence. So that means that the what we know is that they, from the time they were born to about age three, they are. Growing and learning so rapidly. So, they're trying to practice their skills. And you said it physically, mm. they're practicing how their body moves through space. Cognitively, they're practicing all the things they learned. Like, oh, if I, she said to not throw the ball, but what if I throw it again? What'll <laughs> happen? <laughs> right. they're, testing their, they're testing their limits. Yes. They're testing their language. So, that's mm-hmm. why children are. Their favorite words become no and stop and mine because it's like, oh, in this context, does no still work? (laughs) So when we understand what their innate need is in that Mm -hmm. developmental period, it helps us to have more compassion. So those are three things. And then finally, our own self-care because it is more it's easier said than done. We can understand it intellectually mm-hmm. that yes, this is a child that is dependent on us, the adults, to to really function in this world and they need to practice all these skills. But if we aren't taking care of ourselves, we're not sleeping enough, that's a huge one. I have to learn over the years mm-hmm. that sleep is huge for me. We're not eating enough, we're not staying hydrated, etc. Mm-hmm. Managing our stress, it's hard to show up in interactions with our children where we can have compassion and remember that they're just two or three.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I really love how you ended that, that they're just two or three. I have to remind myself that. And that's really the only thing that has saved my sanity during the tantrums. Is just I have to take a breath before responding and remind myself she's only two or three. <laughs> it's so true. I do have your top three uh, beha- common behaviors that you commonly see that maybe we can go over just as co- like practical examples of ways okay. that children do communicate with us with their behavior and then how we should respond to that.
1: Sure. Something that is really common is um, resistance around a routine so, I'm going to use one that I know mm. that your listeners may be dealing with uh, once school starts back up. And I know we don't want to talk about that because it just <laughs> became summer, but now, right <laughs> with when August when school it is. So, when school starts back and we we're getting back into the hustle and bustle of in-person school, and maybe we have more than one child, and it's that morning stressor because it is a stressor getting everybody out the door. And your toddler re- resists every single routine. <laughs> so brushing, eating breakfast, brushing teeth, putting on shoes, getting in the mm-hmm. car, etc. cetera. Um, very, very common. And so the resistance is rooted in the mm-hmm. need to control. So remember we talked about their innate need of a toddler is independence. So when you're independent, you're controlling your actions, Mm. you're controlling what you get to do. And so remembering that the resistance is is innately there, it's rooted, that's their job to practice resisting and showing you they can do it. Um, Building in buffers for the routine. So some buffers are transitional cues and warnings for your child. So not warnings in a negative connotation way Mm -hmm. and warnings like more in a heads up way. So it would be something like, Emily, we're going to have breakfast in two minutes. We're going to put your cars away Mm -hmm. in two minutes so we can come sit down and have breakfast. Mm -hmm. Depending on your child's temperament, right? They may be really responsive to, okay, two minutes have passed. Let's do it. And they can go. If it's a morning, they haven't slept well, they don't have that temperament, you may try things like very tangible items. Like I, I recommend mm-hmm. often a little egg timer and not our phones, right? Because our phones, it's an arbitrary timer that just rings or, you know, setting a, an egg timer. Mm-hmm. The child can't see it. So they're unexpected when it goes off. So a little mm-hmm. egg timer where they can see it, right? And so remembering that children learn holistically so they need to see it and so you can flip it over and say emily when the sand and it's a very concrete example when the sand empties out and it's all done and it's in the bottom Mm -hmm. it's going to be time for breakfast the sand empties out you're there close by monitoring it okay emily it's time if there's resistance at that point you can say because children want to feel like they have control especially toddlers would you like to walk over to the breakfast table or would you like me to mm. hold your hand? Would you like to walk or would you like to hop? <laughs> would you like to hop or would I you like want that. me to hold you? So give them options. And depending on right. your child, right? And so it's building in the time to do mm-hmm. these things because that's the other piece, right? If it's one of those mornings where there's no time for this negotiation, which right. is constant, um, you will hit you may hit more mm-hmm. resistance. Um, and with time, if there is no time, just be prepared to say, okay, well, this is how we're going to roll. She doesn't want to put on her pajamas or her clothes. Is it okay to go to daycare <laughs> in pajamas and make that call? Deciding that right. important. I
0: like that a lot. It's a tricky one for sure. I like that a lot. So resistance around routine. Is there another common example that, that you frequently see with, kids and how that they behave?
1: Potty training. So toilet learning is one that's huge. It's a very hot topic for people. And I think it's important to remember with potty learning is mm. to take the cues from the child. If you're letting a child lead this process, again, the resistance is lower and the child feels more in control. So the way that I have consulted with lots of parents and worked with teachers around this is looking to see when the child physically is showing signs of readiness. So they're able to have dry diapers for extended periods of time. They're telling you when they have to use the restroom or after they've used it in their diaper. So there's some awareness around their bladder and their um, just their body their, and how it functions. And then from there, getting some real buy-in with the child, like using the potty. And again, a lot of it is dependent on consistency from the parent and follow through. Um, and when there's a lot of resistance with the potty, that can be an indicator of huge setbacks. So it's important to start and be consistent so that there isn't a power struggle. Because with what we know in the toddler years is there's a they're prone for power struggles. So really eliminating that most important. And then my final example, again, I think bedtime routines or routines in general are huge, but bedtime routine might be another one that's challenging. Make it fun, give options um, and having that bottom line. If you want your child in the bed by let's say eight, deciding when you want to start that process and keeping it consistent Um, and not expecting them to just be ready at eight o'clock to be ready to go to bed. So building in those buffers again,
0: that's so true that I recently just discovered Mm -hmm. how long it takes to get my toddler ready for bed. If I want to make it to bed on time, like every night, I think, okay, tonight we're going to be in bed by seven 30, which never happens or like rarely happens. Uh, but then I so I, I started early, you know, the process early and then we st- we finish at eight and, and then I'm just so <laughs> tired after I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, building all, in all those buffers and in dealing with the resistance and then giving all the choices and then negotiating with the toddler, all this stuff. And then it's like, Oh, it's still eight yeah. o'clock, <laughs> but it's so true because when I first started doing the the toddler, you know, the bedtime routines, I didn't realize how much of a buildup you mm-hmm. needed to have. And so initially that was a sort of frustration because it's like, Oh my gosh, like it's almost eight you know, hurry up and get them in bed. And, and then you, I would just get frustrated and those sorts of things. So it's so true what you said. Like I've I've definitely done that. Like having the buffers helps so much to not feel stressed and to keep your cool and, yeah. and not lose it in in that in that process. So I, I really like that. What about strong-willed children? I saw that you talked about this on your Instagram page, and you also mentioned how we can reframe the term strong-willed children. I personally know. A couple moms who they've told me that they really do have what they f- really 100% believe are strong willed mm-hmm. children. And just from what I've seen, how their kids act, it does seem that they are pretty strong willed children, just a lot like extra, extra resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you reframe the mindset for those parents uh, who do have the strong willed children? And then how do you approach it? Differently, the parenting style for those kids who are just oh, above and beyond, you know, the extra—they're just a little bit extra um, in terms of res- the normal toddler mm-hmm. resistance.
1: Yeah, that's it's a tricky one, right? I often try to meet on common ground with the parents around this and interject a little humor because. That child is gonna make an amazing adult that knows what they want more often than not. So helping them remember, and I, I talked to my clients about this, remembering that we are parenting children to become adults.
0: Right. Right. And so I it's like really
1: hard. It's really hard when they're itty bitty to, to remember that because we want to cherish the ears and I hope everyone cherishes the years because it goes quickly. And I know that your audience can relate to that. Um, but ultimately we are raising children to become adults. So I meet there with the parent and say, wow, let's talk about how wonderful it is that this child is exhibiting qualities that will make them an amazing adult. Can you imagine? Maybe they'll go into law. Maybe they'll go into et cetera, right? So that's one way, like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Then we start to talk about the reality of, well, it's, really challenging the parent this way. And I would say everything I've said is still true. And your child, that strong-willed child, is pushing you to be a better you because it starts with the parent. You definitely have to tap into yourself. How can I show up rested and ready to meet this child in this day? Because it is challenging. Um, My children... Were educated through the Waldorf pedagogy, and a part of one of their tenets is to build up the will of the child. So, what that essentially means is, and that's the reframe that you want a child that has a strong will, and the will is used in this way of that'll continue to persist when things get tough. Um, in the psycho in the psychology world, there's a lot of research around grit. So essentially, when things are hard, do you you give up or do you push because you want to push through Mm. and make this happen? So that's Mm. the reframe. Essentially, these kids that are strong-willed are like, I am not giving up. I want to do this and I want to do it now my way. (laughs) Their will is strong. (laughs) So we can congratulate them. And we, we can take some breaths so that we can show up in a way that helps them. Navigate our expectations, the situation, Mm. um, have lots of grace and patience with ourselves. Because the challenging part is when I see children that are extremely strong-willed, there tends to be um, an imbalance between their chronological age and some of their developmental areas. So a child that's two, for example... Yes, it's very interesting. A child that's two, for example, and is extremely strong-willed may be really advanced cognitively, really advanced in their language mm. abilities, but socially, emotionally, and their emotional regulation, they're still two. So this is a child that you see right. that can hold full sentences. They can name. They can. They're memorizing books. They can hold, you know, hold conversations. But when they're tired, um, they, their emotional regulation is exactly where it's supposed to be for their age. So that's what I mean with an imbalance. Right. Um, that's so And many parents, yeah, and many parents have not studied child development,
0: so right. they don't know that. Right. I did, I, yeah, I didn't know that either.
1: And so it helps explain, oh, this is why, like my child is is advanced in their understanding of X, Y, and Z, but- They are their age. Mm. And so helping us adults reconcile what it is that this child needs. Oftentimes we see it with Mm -hmm. children whose language may be at its chronological age, but maybe cognitively they're advanced or physically. Mm -hmm. That happened with my son. He was walking at nine months and people would say to Mm, me, oh, well, aren't you so happy? And I thought, no, he's nine months he doesn't understand if I walk over here, I can get hurt or, you know, <laughs> so physically. That is so true. And, you know.
0: He doesn't understand the consequences no, of his no. actions. Yeah. Cause and effect, those sorts of things. No. Yeah. And
1: so, you know, we had our 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 moments, our hard moments because he'd want to go up the, the playground mm-hmm. slide eight feet tall and do all these things by 12 months because he had mastered walking. So. Um, Mm. that's what I would say is be, be kind to ourselves as moms and, and try to, um, really reframe what our children may be experiencing and trying to communicate.
0: Going based off of that mindset of reframing that recently my husband and I have noticed that our daughter is actually a pretty good negotiator when you take a step back and look at it because initially, you know, it was kind of annoying that whenever I would Mm -hmm. say, don't do this or that, she would negotiate. And then we both realized like, oh my gosh, like she's, she's actually really good at this. And, and I don't know if it's because I'm rubbing off on her because I'm a lawyer. So, and then I'm thinking, oh no, maybe that, you know, I'm sure that that's how I, I mean, I know that that's how I am, but it's like rubbing off on her. But one example is last night, I I would share a funny story is Mm -hmm. that I, I just told her, I said, Hey, you need to get a quick bath because you know we're running out you know running uh, against the clock it was bedtime was coming up pretty soon and then she said I want a bubble bath and then I was like no not tonight you're getting a quick bath and then she stops and Mm -hmm. then she says okay fine a quick bubble bath I'm like what the heck like she just (laughs) reframed the whole thing she's negotiating and she's almost like a I I mean I don't want to say not car salesman, but like basically like a lawyer. I'm like, wait a minute, how old are you? You're only three. And then you just somehow just decided that you can get a quick bubble bath. Anyway, I just thought that that story is so illustrated that then we're just like okay. chuckling about it instead of getting annoyed, like, uh, oh, you know, yes. if, if we weren't realizing how brilliant that was, we would probably just get super annoyed and be like, oh my gosh, no, Kate, like we to go to bed now. But then when we realized, wow, she's a great negotiator, then we could kind of like laugh about it. And then I think we ended up giving her a quick bubble bath because we're like, Oh, that's, Mm -hmm. that's brilliant. Okay, fine. As long as she realizes it's just going to be really short because she loves baths. She could stay in there like for hours. So
1: (laughs) I love that story so much.
0: I love too, what you were talking about for grit uh, and that recent psychology is now saying that, that that's actually something really good Mm -hmm. to teach children Uh, Another example that I have for that is I'm not sure if you've heard of Sarah Blakely. She's she invented Spanx and uh, I follow her on Instagram and she said that her dad would always ask her when she came home from school, what did you fail at today? Which is interesting because most parents always say, Oh, what, what did you do good? And it's all centered around positivity. And when you, and then when kids fail, then it's, it's looked at negatively. And then there's this whole thing. And then I feel like it creates an environment. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. This is just me, like, you know, being a couch psychologist. I feel like it almost creates this environment that then you're afraid to do things because you're afraid to fail. Right. So anyway, um, I, I'm not sure if, if that's in line with what you're talking about, Grit. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any recommendations for how we can learn more about Grit and children and teaching that to them? Any books or resources? That's,
1: I've, I don't, I'm not familiar with her. And I love that her father did that. It, it's so wonderful. Creating a culture of it's okay to fail and our failures help propel, propel us, right? It's similar to growth mindset. Growth mindset. Yes. I would say, I would start there with Mm -hmm. growth mindset. That's been a huge um, push in the K-5 world and maybe K-12. I feel like um, in high school in California, it's been talked about a lot. So this idea that our, similar to your story, our um, tough moments and our failures help create space for learning and that learning then builds upon itself Mm -hmm. to help us succeed. And so- Making mis- making mistakes mm, is like welcomed, that. and when you make mistakes, it's going back and being inquisitive and asking, "Oh, why did that happen?" Um, and the research around grit, I would just say, um, starting there, defining grit for yourself, and it's it's when we think about how we can teach it to children, it's really about, and we can all probably think about this in our lives or the lives of others. When you when you start something, we finish it. So that's one really practical way that that us moms can help develop that in our children. So if we've committed to, you know, we've committed to this uh, board game, um, let's finish it out. And then once we're done with it, we can do something else. If we have committed to. This dance class, and this is as they get older, of course, that's so keeping it age-appropriate, but that helps because it's like, well, we're going to learn something from this. And, of course, we have to be flexible in ourselves, just like you were with your daughter with a quick bubble bath. I love that. Um, being flexible, and, of course, we know our children, but those are the things that help develop the will and the grit of mm. the child. So when it gets hard, you don't just – stop you
0: pushed through and um what did we learn Mm. from that I love that so so much you talk a, a lot about reactivity and triggering on your uh Instagram page too I'm honestly not that familiar with it so I would love to learn more about what that looks like in parents and caregivers so
1: um Dr. Daniel Siegel does a lot of work on um really what he talks about is us being triggered in reactivity. And so he talks about the brain research. And so simply put, if we think about the brain, this is the frontal lobe and this is the brain. Inside is the limbic system and the limbic system is responsible for our emotional response emotional response center. And so it if we think about the hand, and this is how Dr. Daniel Siegel describes it, it kind of when the brain is completely integrated by age 25, we have the skills and the capacity our brain has developed where the frontal lobe helps us do um, thinking about right from wrong, um, abstract thought, all of these things that help us control our emotional regulation, right? So if a car cuts us off, we're not going to ram into their car because we're going to realize like, no, that's that's not appropriate, Right. Um, so children, because their brains are not fully integrated, they don't have access to that capacity right away. They are listening to the people around them, remembering like, oh, I shouldn't hit my friend. Hands are not for hitting, et cetera. But they are triggered and they're they're thinking with their emotions. And so when we're trying to help children develop their, um, their um, capacity for this, we're talking about consequences. We're talking about what they could have done instead. And it helps them to not be triggered and react from their limbic system. And as adults, as we age and our brains become more integrated, we learn coping skills so that we're not out here doing things that are illegal and things like that. And there are moments where we all have our libs flipped and we have to do what we do, take a deep breath, apologize, (laughs) whatever it is, Mm -hmm. because we weren't our best selves. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And so children depend on the adults to help them find ways to cope in those moments. Um, And something that helps with that is like attention maintenance, so Mm. how children can attend to different activities and different things at once. That's one skill to kind of help them learn that, oh, okay, how do I control, regulate, control my emotions? I have an adult that's helping me by modeling being calm. That's why I was saying, you know, us moms showing up in those moments as calm and present as we can helps reflect back to the child calmness Mm -hmm. and um, really the skills they need in those moments
0: Mm -hmm. when they've
1: been flipped. Mm
0: -hmm. So it sounds like, in terms of helping toddlers manage the reactivity and the the triggering that it sounds like that the, the first step that we really need to make sure that we as moms are showing up calm and taking care of ourselves, that we have that capacity to, uh, you know, be that role model for our children. And then secondly, um, are, are there any ways that we can phrase, uh, what we tell our toddlers so that they don't react in that way. Is, is there a positive way or an appropriate way to tell a toddler, you know, Oh, we don't, I, I know that you said like our hands aren't for hitting or there's, or, you know, are there some phrases that, that you prefer?
1: Definitely. I think it's super important and you're hundred percent right. Emily,
0: first it starts
1: with us because we are co-regulating So we can't expect toddlers that don't have a fully integrated brain, right, to control their emotions. So we're co-regulating with them. We're modeling calm behavior. And then second, remember we talked about that power struggle, right, with toddlers. So it's most effective when you tell a toddler what they can do instead of Mm, what they can't do. I like that. So (laughs) in those hard moments, yeah, in those hard moments, they're crying and we have a hard time. In our culture, especially moms out in public because unfortunately people judge, right, but have a hard time with um, strong emotions. But when they're having these strong emotions and their lid is flipped, remembering that this is hard for them, they they don't have the capacity, they're, they're really struggling. And then just saying what you see, you're really angry. I hear you, you're crying. I'm here. And, you know, if the child is responsive to this, you can put your hand on their chest. Your heart's beating so fast. Just tell them what you're seeing. You're kind of narrating it for them. What that does is it gives them emotional literacy. So then they can put words and understanding to what they're feeling, right? And then the part where you tell them what to do. Yeah. The part where you tell them what to do instead comes after they've had their whole tantrum and their emotional um, expression, right? And it's like, oh, you were really upset. You know, next time what you can do when you're upset is you can scream in a pillow, you can, and you give them all the things they can do instead. It's not safe when you, whatever, run out of the, the house or whatever it is, or it's not okay for you to hit me. You may not hit me. And when it's a line that you don't want them to cross, it's no no longer a negotiation. It's a very stern, you may not hit me. And it doesn't have to be loud. It's just, I won't let you hit me. I won't let you hurt me or yourself so that they feel nice and safe. Because remember, they're pushing against those boundaries. So help them feel safe by giving them the boundaries. But then you tell them what else they can do. Well, you Mm -hmm. can scream into a pillow, you can cry, we can draw, you can throw these (laughs) bean bags into this bucket, whatever it is. Um, So finding things they can Mm -hmm. do to express themselves. I like that. I've never
0: heard that term before that you used emotional literacy. What what exactly is that? Mm -hmm. And I'd love to explore that a little bit more if there's anything more to that. Sure. Sure. So literacy
1: so words right and so emotional literacy is helping children understand connecting their feelings to and with words to put them into words and we can probably think of adults that need support with this right so if we can <laughs> if we can help young children do it think about how wonderfully set up they will be for life but really it's helping them understand their strong emotions and um, it can start early, you know, early on because child babies are looking at our faces and they're mimicking our facial expressions and just putting words with their emotions. And it doesn't mean that we're assigning um, their emotions to them, but we can say, oh, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if you were angry. I wonder if you were sad. And the way that we can expand their emotional literacy is talking about themselves Books are a wonderful resource. When you're reading books, you can look at people's faces and animals' faces. And I wonder if this lion is happy. I wonder if this lion is angry, frustrated. Um, mirrors are a good tool. You can look in the mirror and say, let's make our funny face, our silly face, our scared face. And so you're just putting, helping them yeah. identify how they're feeling. It's really important. It's important work. Mm. Um, and it helps set them up to really be able to express themselves. And when we talk about what they can do instead, if a child under, if whenever, not, not even a child, when we all feel understood, it's one of the best feelings you feel seen, Mm -hmm. validated and understood. So if a child can relate to you that they're angry without hitting you or, Make just destroying their room or whatever it is, they can use their words because you've helped build up their
0: emotional literacy, right? Yeah, gosh, I love that so much. That's that's so beautiful. I recently got a book for my daughter, it was like a Sesame Street book on feelings, and they were they were sort of doing the same thing. There was, you know, it was about a surprise birthday party for Big Bird, and they were saying, How does Big Bird feel now? And so, Mm. my daughter was identifying them. Uh, but I never thought of doing that for for the books too and also narrating that so I'm gonna have to give mm-hmm. that a shot. Uh, what are some developmentally appropriate expectations in children? and why is it that we as parents expect our children to act like adults when they are toddlers or you know or even act like adults when they are teenagers?
1: Well, the short answer is we just forget. We forget, and that's just the way I think it's designed. That we forget how it was to be a toddler. We forget how it was to be a teen. So that's the first reason why I think we ex- have expectations that don't match reality. Um, and then the first part of that question, you know, it's really looking at the developmental stage of where the child is and what they can be expected to do at that age. So emerging independence for a toddler is at the forefront. It's what they're doing. It's what they're supposed to be doing, um, testing their limits with their body. Um, and so helping support them in those ways is, is where we're going to have the most gains and the most success. Um, and when we go against that, that's when we have the most challenges. Um, When we think about like four-year-olds and preschoolers, something that's very common is um, I have talked to lots of parents around children starting to have really bad dreams at that time. And a lot of times I can help track that back to the child has started watching a new show or saw something on TV that they weren't supposed to see. And what we know developmentally is that around age four and five, Children's dreams feel like they're reality to them. So if that's something that we didn't know, and then as a parent, our child has watched this new show, then that helps connect the dots for them. So the expectation may be like, well, you used to sleep in your bed. Why are you back in my bed again? And not connecting the dots to, oh, I didn't know that their dreams at that age appear to them like reality they just seem so real and it's a developmental stage so it's it's mostly rooted in we forget um what it was like to be that age and we forget what's possible at that age um because each developmental period is so unique
0: uh what are i know that we do have some moms who um have kids that are in the the next age range, uh, you know, 36 to five years, the, sorry, 36 months to five years old, uh, and then the five year to fifth grade. Uh, maybe we can just briefly talk about that. I know that we're running out of time, mm-hmm. but, um, I thought we could, you know, touch on that just a little bit. What are some developmentally appropriate expectations for those age ranges?
1: So five year, that's a, it's a real big one there um, from age that school age years, um, early childhood is technically considered, um, from age zero to age eight. Um, so that would be into first and second grade. And then from there, um, that would be third grade to fifth. We know that children are still really asserting their independence, but really getting into mastery around their language and their, um, really their exploration and all of that. And the one thing that we know about young girls at that age, um, really confident and feeling strong and um, excited about learning and have a strong sense of self at that point. Um, So that's really exciting. Um, And that's really what's going on at that, that age range there.
0: With that, um, I think I'll just go ahead and ask the question that I ask every single mom that's on our show, which is, when is a time that you've realized that it's okay to not be a perfect mom and okay to be a good one instead?
1: I love this question so much. I think I realized when I was pregnant with my second child, and I... Had a three-and-a-half-year-old, and and I was about seven months pregnant, in the shower, dead tired. I had often forgot I was pregnant because I was just running after my three-and-a-half-year-old and was working and was super busy doing all the things. And I just had this meltdown in the shower where I was so tired and I felt very betrayed by my body that I was actually tired and needing to go to sleep instead of staying up and working. And I just was crying and crying. And I thought, I just need to work. And then I realized my body was telling me what I needed to do, which was rest. I was making a baby and being a mom to a three and a half year old and doing all the things, right? And that was the moment I got out of the shower and I told my husband, I was so upset. And I told my husband, I just... I'm so tired. And in that moment, I realized I have been helping so many parents and families. I needed to take my own advice and take care of myself mm. or I could not show up to be the type of mom that I needed to be. Mm. Um, mm. and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I really had that moment because being a mother of one is one thing, but being a mother of two <sighs> under four is another. And, um, I needed to. I learned that sleep is so important to me and other things that Mm -hmm. help ground me um, nature, my family, faith those things really Mm -hmm. um, I lean on. But that's when I realized Mm -hmm. on the bathroom floor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. And I can definitely (laughs) attest that having uh, two under four is very hard because I have a three and a half year old. And a seven-month-old. I had to think about that a minute. I feel like he's just growing so fast that it's hard to keep keep up with how many months he is. Uh, but it's so true. It's just a, a big adjustment to have to adjust to having two kids. So just when you thought you had it at one at mm-hmm. one kid. So, well, thank you so much, Doctor Amber, for our conversation today and taking the time to chat with us and educate us. Where can everyone find you online?
1: You are very welcome. You can find me at Think Partner in Education. That's Think Partner in Education on Instagram, Facebook, and thinkpartnerineducation.com is where you'll find my blog and you'll be able to access all of my social media from there. And I do, I would love to extend the invitation to your listeners. I offer a free consultation. So if anyone wants to reach out and have more of a conversation, I'd be happy to do that.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much again. I I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Stay cool.